Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. We have died with Christ and have been buried with him into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life in part means that we are no longer slaves to sin. Christ who died for you has set you free from sin. That newness of life means that we will live with him and will be made like him in the resurrection. Being in Christ means that there is now uh, no condemnation. No longer must we set our minds on the things of the flesh, but we can now set our minds on the things of the Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit helps our weaknesses and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And no longer are we slaves to sin and death, because he who conquered sin and death has set his love upon you. And we know that, being in Christ, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Ezekiel chapter 16. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you, so that you became mine, declares the Lord Yahweh. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with the embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands, and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord Yahweh. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. And you took some of your claws, made for yourself high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them, and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord Yahweh. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me, and you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols and causing them to pass through the fire. And besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Then it came about after all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord Yahweh, that you built for yourself a shrine and made yourself a high place in every square. 
You built yourself a high place at the top of every street and made your beauty abominable, and you spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. You also played the harlot with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and multiplied your harlotry to make me angry. Behold, now I have stretched out my hand against you and diminished your rations, and I delivered you up to the desire of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines who are ashamed of your lewd conduct. Moreover, you played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. You even played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. You also multiplied your harlotry with the land of merchants, Chaldea. Yet even with this, you were not satisfied. How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord Yahweh. While you do all these things, the action of a bold-faced harlot. When you built your shrine at the beginning of every street and made your high place in every square in, a disdaining, in disdaining money, you were not like a harlot. You adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all harlots, but you give gifts to all your lovers to bribe them to come to you from every direction for your harlotries. Thus you are different from the women in your harlotries in that no one plays the harlot as you do because you give money and no money is given you. Thus, you are different. We'll turn now to 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. You for, your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, Father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away in all its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Let us turn now to the back of your bulletin and we'll read together as a congregation Psalm 15. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in singing, O God, our help in ages past. Last time, uh, last time I taught on a passage about trouble, uh, before the book of James here, it was in Minnesota and there was a snowstorm that day and our driveway was an ice slick and as I was backing out to, uh, to get there to teach, my car slid down the hill and it slid into a, it was about an eight foot tall snow bank that I had built up over that particular winter. 
And we were stuck quite handily in said snowbank. I, I tried to extract myself, and in the end, I didn't have a, a snowplow at the time. I just had a shovel, and I had to dig through this eight-foot bank in my suit. And all I could think was, well, here, here's a little bit of trouble to rejoice in. This morning, we had a little bit of trouble as well. Uh, the end of the story is that I backed down the driveway into our trash can. The beginning of the story is that I poured peanut oil into one of my vans. And in between, we lost the water in our house and the ability to shower. Count it all joy. <laughs> we made it here. A little bit greasy and uh, don't sniff us too much. But remember... James is a book about trouble, not lighthearted trouble like that, although we have the opportunity to rejoice in, according to James, all kinds of trouble, whether those of our own making, like me in a boneheaded move, or the ones that God in his grace gives us, sometimes through our own making, but sometimes through a completely different means from other people's hands. At least we, we can receive those kinds of trials. And James says, consider it joy. That can be hard to do. The message of James is about how to put our heads on straight and think about trouble. And as we come again to chapter 4 and talk about conflict, particularly among people, we need to remember that that is the subject of the book of James. When you encounter all kinds of trouble, rejoice. Rejoice because you know You know that you're people born of the word. You know that God made you and formed you for this purpose. And that that trouble is a gift from God to bring us to maturity. And not just us, but to bring all those around us together into the goal for which God has made us. If you would, pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning and... Lord, there's trouble, much more trouble than the little bit I experienced this morning. Lord, we know of the trouble in our country. We pray about it. We see children dying at the hands of wicked men. Lord, we see corruption in the church, in the government, in society. We we have a war of culture. Lord, we see people suffering halfway around the globe your people suffering on both sides of a conflict not of their own doing. And yet, Lord, you call us to rejoice, to think rightly about what you've done in, through, and for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as, you, as we read your word this morning that you would encourage us to this end, that we would put away the wrong-headed responses of pandering to those who bring conflict and of ourselves copying their means and bringing conflict and struggle within your church. Lord, help us to know that we are your people, that our identity is written in your word, and we find out who we are there. Lord, we pray for, pray for open ears to hear, quick to hear, slow mouths to speak, and when we do, to speak your word rightly. We pray, as James calls us to pray, for hearts that are slow to anger, when we hear your word, rebuke us. Lord, fill us up today. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So remember, James is about trouble. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter all kinds of trouble. That really means all kinds, all different kinds of trouble. And that book is written to a people that are dispersed among those that are hostile to them. So in the book of James, the church is suffering tribulation at the hands of Jews. They're being cast out, they're being spread abroad, and yet God's purpose is being accomplished through them. Remember that at the beginning of the book of Acts, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. I'm going to go forth. It's it's maybe not how they expected it to happen, that they would be dispersed out into the outlying communities, that they would suffer at the hands of their own people. But that is how God's word went forth. And looking in hindsight, we should be encouraged by that when we encounter trouble today. God works the same way. The same Jesus who died to bring us life calls us to walk in his footsteps, to suffer and to die like him. 
knowing that he produces through it life. So in the book of James, he's encouraging us then to think about that trouble and to think rightly. If you remember back in chapter 1, we said that there's two ways to think about trouble. One way is to think about trouble as a temptation. The trouble is brought about in order to bring us unto destruction. He said, do not be deceived. God does not tempt you. That trouble that brings about destruction isn't given by God for that purpose. Satan does that. However, the same trouble is given by God as a trial for our good, from the good Father who gives good gifts from above in order to bring us to maturity, to give us wisdom. And when we think rightly about that trouble, we have the opportunity to respond and to obtain wisdom and life. Now, in the book of James, he outlines for us two different ways that we commonly respond to trouble that are wrong. So the first way in chapter 2, he rebukes his, his hearers, his readers. He rebukes them for pandering to the rich. He says, are, they, are these rich not the same ones that personally drag you into court? They're bringing the trouble to you. And so one way in which to respond to that trouble when you squirm and you say, I don't want this, one way to get out of it is to pander to the one bringing it. So you submit to those that are bringing the difficulty into your life and submit wrong-headedly. And so what they were doing was they were taking the rich and setting them on a pedestal. And the reason is because when you do that, you can alleviate your pain. Right? So you, you can pander to the wicked who are in charge or at least seem to be in charge and thus oppress the poor man and at least for a while appear to gain a foothold on your trouble. So that's one method. The second method in the book of James begins in chapter 3, and it's the opposite tactic. Instead of using Stockholm Syndrome, where, where you, you cling to the one who's oppressing you, you go the other direction. You say, we're going to copy your means in order to fight you. And so in the book of James, he's also rebuking his, his listeners who are listening to the word, and he's saying, don't be like that. Be slow to speak, because the tongue is a fire, and its fire is set on... It's set on fire by Gehenna. It's a world of iniquity that's put into our body, and so be careful. Be careful what you speak because the tongue brings about violence and murder, and that's where we come to in chapter 4. And we cover the first few verses, I think it's six weeks ago, but I'm going to go back through some of that just a little bit because I want to look, instead of backwards this time at the context with regard to wisdom, I want to look forward in chapter 4 to the context in which he's calling us to cease conflict and fighting. But again, I think, I think it's worthwhile to read the full section, starting in chapter 3. So if you would, open your Bibles to James chapter 3 and hear God's word. Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such you shall incur stricter mega-judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature and able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits in the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold the ships also, though they are great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot wills. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the wheel of our life and is set on fire by Gehenna. Every species, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creeping thing and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unstable evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives and a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, by the good behavior of his deeds, the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, 
Do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, instability, and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and of good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures which wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wickedly, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? So notice, again, that chapter 3 and chapter 4 hang together. They're bookended by, by this rebuke about how you speak. It's an admonition, do not speak against one another, do not judge one another, be slow to speak, be careful with your tongue because it's dangerous. And in the middle, we have this discussion of wisdom and then conflict and how wisdom and conflict interact. So six weeks ago, we discussed the beginning of chapter four, what is the source, source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source your pleasures that wage war among your members. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. And if you recall, I made the argument that what they were lusting for, not consciously, but subconsciously, that the lust was for a form of wisdom. So going back to the Garden of Eden, you remember what Eve said? She looked at the tree after talking to the serpent, and it looked like it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And we're going to come back to that text this morning to discuss again the source of quarrels and conflicts. The end of it is wisdom. The, the wisdom, the ability to judge right from wrong, to know right from wrong, and all of those things are good things, and that's important to keep in mind. When, we came, when, when you come to Genesis 3 and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God is the one who puts it in the garden and says, of all the trees, they're good for food, they're desirable, they're good. And that's what's so insidious about chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The pleasures that we seek. They're twisted versions of the very treasures that God sets and hides for us. And so when, when Satan comes to Eve in the garden to deceive her, he takes the words of God and he twists them. And those treasures that God has guarded, they're taken and they're taken apart from God. And it's this context that we bring into James chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Look back to verse 18 and notice the juxtaposition. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's talking about wisdom. God-given wisdom is sown by peacemakers who make peace. But Contrasting with that, there is an earthly wisdom, a natural wisdom, a demonic wisdom in chapter 3, verse 15. It's similar. It's similar in nature to the wisdom that comes from God. Similar in definition in the, the judgment of right versus wrong. 
but it's twisted, in which we then take that authority, the judgment of right and wrong, and take it on ourselves apart from God. And so you can hear, you can hear that in the end of this chapter, in the conclusion, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law, but if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of it, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, what we're going to do this morning is expand on verses 1 through 3, but in the context of verses 4 and 5. So he says, and take this to heart, we need to consider this, think about this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, this is written to a readership that's in trouble. They've got trouble, and that's when conflict arises, is when there's trouble. When we're at peace, when life is easy, it's easy to get along with our spouses in the church and in the world. We don't have the friction that creates conflict. But when that trouble arises, and we need to be prepared for it because it will arise, whether from within or from without, God will give this gift of trouble, and we need to be prepared for it to think rightly about it, or it will create conflict. We will allow it to create conflict by seeking out the things, twisted versions of the things that God has made us for. Remember, God set eternity in our hearts. God is the one that planted Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them to seek after Him. He made them to seek after wisdom, to seek what's good and right, to eat from His hand, to receive life from Him. But when they took from the tree, they did so apart from God. And the gifts that they received were not the gifts that God was giving. So there was a form of wisdom there was a form of life, there was a form of delight to the eyes that they obtained when they ate, but it wasn't what God intended. So when we have trouble, what is the source of that quarrel and conflict that arises out, out of it? Is not the source your pleasure? It's the word from which we get hedonism, the, the pleasures. It's not necessarily a bad word. The pleasures wage war in our members, and he talks about them with, with regards to this word lust or desire as it's translated in, in, in uh, other verses of our, our Bibles. You lust and you do not have. You're lusting for this pleasure, for the things that Eve saw on the tree. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. If you recall, we went back then to Acts chapter 6, and we saw that there in Acts chapter 6, when Stephen was put to death, it was following the same formula. Stephen approached the council of the freedmen, the Jewish, the, the Hellenistic sect, and he, he argued with them, and they could not cope with his spirit of wisdom, and so they served him up to the council and murdered him. You lost and you do not have, so you commit murder. I think it's easy for us to recognize this on a grand scale in those around us. It's always easy to peg this particular sin when you look outside. And so you can think about the abortion that plagues our land. Well, it's, it's this exactly. You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. What, is that, what are people looking for when they abort their, their babies? Well, they're looking for life, a twisted version of the life that God gives. But nonetheless, they're looking for life. They're making a judgment call about right and wrong in order to obtain those pleasures, those gifts. But, of course, as we know from chapter 1, when it takes this form of lust, that lust gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it always brings forth death. The sin brings forth murder in the form of fratricide. Brother, brother murdering brother, as Cain and Abel, as the council of the freedmen did with Stephen. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You can see the same thing with the, the war that Putin is waging. It's a desire unfilled that he's seeking. But the letter of James speaks to his readership, the church, and it speaks to us too through that. You lust and you do not have. You desire, maybe as a word that, that makes us stop and consider a little bit more. You desire and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight 
and quarrel. Behind every fight, there is a desire unmet. There's a lust that's unfulfilled. Now, that desire may be set on something that seems good. And that's where we have to, we have to be careful to consider when we're in the middle of conflict, what is the desire that's driving that conflict? And remember that that desire can be extremely close to good, God-given desires and yet be a little bit off. So that we desire good and life for our family. And that, that's a desire that drives us. And it's not a bad desire. But when it circumvents God, it becomes a lust that produces conflict. It produces murder where we steamroll over others. We take up the tactics of the world around us in order to achieve what we perceive to be the good end. But there is no pragmatism with God. The ends do not justify the means. Instead, the end includes the means. In the book of James, the goal, he says that all of this trouble is producing endurance, and endurance will have its perfect maturing result so that you would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So the goal is maturity. The path is maturity. The goal is wisdom. The path is wisdom. So I said six weeks ago, that proverb, that proverb I like, the beginning of wisdom, acquire wisdom. So you walk down that path. We can't divert from the path which God has set and still achieve the end. And that's what we read in chapter 2, right? So he says, faith without works is dead. That's the same exact point. You reach ahead with faith and you say, this is the goal for which God made us. But along the way, he gives trouble. He gave Abraham a command. He said, go up, to the, go up to the mountain with your son Isaac and sacrifice him. Well, that goal for which the faith was made, in which Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as, as righteousness, it could not be achieved through disobedience. Abraham could not logic his way out of that situation and say, you know... God couldn't possibly condone this. After all, he's promised me a seed in the stars of the heavens. He promised me this, and so I must find another way. That's the kind of worldly demonic wisdom that drives us away from obedience to God. He says you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And don't doubt it. This is behind our quarrels and in our marriages, is desires unmet. And in the church, we fight and we quarrel for these same reasons, because we desire. We desire and we do not have. So consider. Consider those desires, and, and we will here in just a minute. We're going to go to 1 John. But before we do that, moving on, he says, the reason that you don't have... Because these can be good desires, the reason you don't have them is because you don't ask. You're not asking God. So think again of Adam and Eve in the garden. They come to the tree, they, and Satan approaches them, and they need help. But they do not ask God. How often is that our story? This is what's going on in the church that James is writing to. They don't have because they, they don't ask. So there's trouble, and the first response in trouble must be, we ask God. We need to go to him to flee to God in order to, to give us the wisdom to endure. And that's exactly what James says. He says, if you lack in your trouble, go to God, ask him. He's a God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, but don't ask with a double mind. Don't ask with judgment in which God says, well, you're going to endure this trouble and it's for your good. And yet you squirm and twist and say, well, I'm going to find a way out. That man, don't expect to receive anything from the good God who gives. So we need to go to God and ask. And that's where we stopped last time. Verse 3 says, when you do ask, and this may be more appropriate for, for us, 
We're taught to ask. So we go to God in prayer when we see trouble. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wickedly so that you may spend it on your pleasure. Well, what does that mean? We, we, we pray, we ask God, we go to him and say, God, I, I need wisdom. I don't know what to do. Or we go to him with, with prayers and say, my, my spouse is in trouble. Fix them. Right? That, that's a, a common one. He says, you ask, you ask for the treasure that you desire, and you don't receive because you ask wickedly. Well, what does that mean? How do we know if we're asking wickedly? He's already told us, if you lack, ask him, and he'll give. But ask in faith without judging his answer without judging the word that God gives ahead of time, so you've predetermined what the answer must be. When you do that, you're double-minded, James says. You're serving two masters, and God will give you nothing. Let not that man expect to receive anything. That is asking wickedly. So I was thinking about this. How, how do we recognize this? What are some examples of asking so that we might spend it on our pleasures or asking wickedly. And we'll, we'll bring some more context to this. But I think some easy ones you can think about in Acts, Simon the Magician. So in that same portion uh, which drives the book of James, we have Simon the Magician. He's, he's asking, he says, I'll pay you. I want this. I want this, this treasure. And it was a good thing. And yet he wants to grasp a hold of it without God giving. And Peter says... You're wicked. It's asking wickedly. What he wanted was good. But his approach to it was not, was not based on coming to the Father who gives to all men generously. It was not an ask of humility. It was an ask, it was a, a demand. I'll pay. I can pay. Another one, if you would, keep your hand in the book of James, but turn to Jeremiah. and We'll use this text to move into the next couple of verses. Jeremiah chapter 21. It's about Zedekiah. I just want to read a few verses here. Remember that Zedekiah was the, the king, the puppet king, who was made by Nebuchadnezzar. The crown was placed on his head, and yet he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He went and he sought the alliance with Egypt. He looked backwards. He sought an alliance with Egypt to overcome Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar warred against him. And finally, in, verse, in chapter 21, he comes to God, and he's making a request. So let's read these, these few verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, when King Zedekiah sent him to Pasher, the son of Malchai, Mal, Malchid, Mal, Mal. and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maseiah, saying, Please inquire of Yahweh on our behalf. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps Yahweh will deal with us according to his wonderful acts, so that the enemy may withdraw from us. Now what's going on behind the text is Zedekiah has waffled back and forth. He's gone and he sought the, the help of Egypt. And when Jeremiah came and said, That's wrong. What you need to do is submit to Nebuchadnezzar. He is your safe haven. You need to put down your arms and submit to him. This is coming from God. Jeremiah gets thrown in prison. They promise to release all the slaves according to what God says. And then a few days later, they take it back and they enslave them all again. And right on top of this, Zedekiah is crying out and he says, Well, let's inquire of Yahweh now. We've rejected everything that he says. We've brought out our own prophets to tell us what we want to hear. Now let's inquire of them because we're in trouble Perhaps he'll deal with us according to those wonderful acts. Perhaps he'll come out. But there's no repentance. There's no humility. And so Zedekiah, he asks, but he asks wickedly so that he might spend it on his pleasures. He wants to be king in Jerusalem. He wants to stay there. It's seemingly a good thing that God's people would overcome Nebuchadnezzar. But he acts, acts wickedly. And in this case, we know because God has already told him exactly what to do. And so the very plea is sin, is wickedness. God has shown him this is what's going to happen. Submit. And yet he refuses. And so this seemingly pious plea to God, perhaps 
Yahweh will come and show us his wondrous acts, perhaps he'll deliver us, is just a request dealt in wickedness. Let not that double-minded man expect that he will receive anything. And that's what happens. God comes to him and he says, I'll deal with you as you've dealt with others. I will indeed recall the army, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to come and make war against you in chapter 34. I'm going to come and consume you and burn the city with fire. So he says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, James chapter 4 again, so that you may spend it on your pleasures, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So in verse 4, we have this added word. He, he calls them adulteresses. It is a feminine word. So he's talking to the church, to God's people. He says, you are an adulteress. And when you, when you use that word and look back on the context of chapter three, or verse 3, sorry, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wickedly so that you may spend it on your pleasures, it adds a whole other dimension. You adulteresses, you're asking, you're coming to your husband and you're asking for good gifts, but your purpose is to take those gifts and spend it on your lover. This is what the kings of Israel did. They come and you strip the temple clean. We want God's good gift of wisdom so that we live and flourish, but we're going to spend it on our lover. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? We read Ezekiel 16, which Hyde informed me is in the top 10 of uh, favorite scripture readings. I, I was unaware of that. But it reminds us of that in very, very graphic terms. This is what an adulteress looks like. God says, I've come and I've taken you as my wife. I'm the one that gave you everything. Every good gift has been given by God. And yet you adulteresses, you want to take those gifts. And he says, you're not like other adulteresses who are paid. You're not like a prostitute. Instead, you want to pay your lover. You want to pay him with my gifts. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? The word friendship is the word philos. It's the one we usually associate with friendly kind of love, but it is the word for love. You could equally translate this, you adulteresses, do you not know that love with the world is hostility? It's enmity towards God, and whoever wishes to be a lover of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want you to notice... Because it's easy to import all of the worldliness passages that we find in the Bible here and to stop thinking about the context. The context is, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why do you fight with one another? And James says, you're fighting because you desire. Your fighting is evidence that you are adulteresses. You fight, you murder... And it shows that you are lusting after another God. I just want to point this out. So the sin is you fight and you murder. But James's complaint is you are a lover of the world. You are an adulteress. Back in chapter 2, James gave us this well-known passage. If, however, you are fulfilling... The king's law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do, do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I've always thought of that legally as, as just one part of the law equates to the whole. But James gives us a little bit more. He's showing us that when we fight and quarrel, when we murder one another, whether it's physically in violence or just with our words, we've also broken the commandment of you shall not commit adultery. You are adulteresses. You see, the whole law hangs together. And James is teaching us that you, you, cannot, you cannot break one commandment and preserve the rest. You can't be 
99% of the way of a lover of God because all of the law is driving to the same point. And so when you break one commandment, you've actually broken all of them. And you can see this throughout the Bible. You start looking at the way that, that the authors describe sin. And for, for the, the readership of James, well, they're, they're committing murder. They're fighting. They're quarreling. Well, what, is it, what does that mean? He says it means they're adulteresses. It also means they've coveted what's not theirs. It also means that, that they're lying, they're stealing, and of course all of the first five commandments go along with it because when you do that to your brother, when you fight and you quarrel because you lost and desire and you don't have, then we are taking the name of the Lord our God in vain when, when we stick it on our personage and on our church. We are putting someone else above him. And so this whole law comes together. He says, you are born of the word. And so when that little fight erupts because of unmet desire, the whole law has crumbled down. The whole law has been broken, and we're guilty. You adulteresses, do you not know that love of the world is hostility towards God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And embedded in there, we have a short time this morning, so I'm already running out of time. Embedded in there is... is the lesson that Jacob learned, remember James is, the, 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 the name James is Jacob, Jacob writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. And the lesson Jacob learns in Genesis is that when he's, when he's got trouble and conflict, his whole life is filled with conflict with other people. So he, he has conflict with his, with his brother, with his father, with his uncle, with his wives. And the lesson that he learns in chapter 35 when he wrestles God is that God is the one behind that conflict. So he sees God. He sees the face of God at Peniel. He learns what it means to wrestle with God, and then he looks up and he sees Esau. You see, when we're struggling with one another, we have unmet desire behind it, we're actually wrestling with God. We, we may not see it that way, but we are struggling with God, and there's a right way and a wrong way to struggle with God, to wrestle with Him. So moving on from that, I just want to quickly go to 1 John, where we read from this morning, and revisit just three verses there in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. He says, do not love the world. The world is filled with these desires, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And then in the epistle of 1 John, we need to know what the world is, and that world is defined for us in John 15. So I'm not going to read all of this. But Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These things, I'm skipping a few verses here, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. They'll make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering a service to God. In 1 John, and I would argue in James too, the specific context of who the world is for those readers is the Jews who are persecuting them, casting them out of synagogues, dispersing them from Jerusalem, they are the ones who are pressing and persecuting them, as we find out in Acts chapter 8. They're stripping away wives, brothers, husbands, and putting them to death. This is the world. And he says, don't love the world. It should seem easy, right? But we're tempted to take up the same means of those that are oppressing us, to fight back with the same kind of sword that the oppressors use. And James says, when you do that, you are a lover of the world. To take those twisted desires, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, and to twist them away from the treasures that God has set for us. And we'll talk about those next, next week. 
and to set our eyes there and to achieve them without him, without asking. And when we do ask, asking not because we want God and the good gifts he's giving, but because we, we want fulfillment right now. He says in verse 5, Do you think that Scripture speaks vainly? He who jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. We'll have to take up this verse next time. It's a, it's a complicated verse in Greek, and I'm not going to pretend to know all the answers, but there's two flavors of it. Both of them are going to speak to this passage. Do you think that Scripture speaks foolishly, to no purpose? It's the same word that he says in chapter 2 of the foolish fellow that says faith, faith can be had without works. He chastises him. He says, you foolish fellow, faith without works is useless. It's empty. It's vanity. And so James says, is Scripture the same kind of vanity that points us to God and says, be a wife of God and yet gives us no hope? Because we can see these sins within us, the desire within us that produces quarreling and conflict. We can see the adultery, the looking backwards of, of Lot's wife, looking back at what was, instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, do you think that Scripture speaks vainly to no end? He who jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. So we'll talk about what that means next time. But for today, I want to end with verse 6. But he gives greater grace. And next week we'll give the answer of how that works out in seven commands to us. So when we find ourselves in the midst of quarreling and conflict and we can identify that desire at its root, he's going to tell us he gives us greater grace. And I'll give you the answer. It's, it's not complicated. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we come to him in humility, when we repent and we come before God and we accept his judgment and his wisdom, then he gives to us generously. He gives abundantly. The one who made us to be born of the word gives us life. Today as we move to the table, let's think about that. Our God is a gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're guilty of these same sins. Lord, when trouble comes, we lash out at one another. We fight and we quarrel. We're tempted to try to cut short any trouble that you give us and to see it as evil instead of as a good gift from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. Lord, that you would help us to put away the adultery of desire that produces fighting and quarreling and jealousy and instead submit ourselves to you, our husband. Lord, help us to be true and pure. We thank you for the forgiveness that can only come from you, given to us by the blood of Jesus through the gift of the Spirit. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen.